everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name's Alice. This week I get to share with you an interview with Christian Book. Christian's someone whose work I came into contact with through the Kelly Writers House program, Modern and Contemporary American Poetry, or ModPo. So it was pretty surreal to have Christian sitting in my study, chatting to me about his work. If you're unaware of Christian's work, which you might be as an Australian listener, he's the author of a book called Eunoia. And Eunoia is a really incredible project took Christian seven years to put together. It works with a number of constraints, one of which is that each chapter is written using words that are limited to a single vowel. So you've got a chapter of A, a chapter of E, that kind of thing. But it also has a bunch of other constraints, which we touch on a little bit in this interview. For the past 20 years, Christian has been working on another project called the Xenotext. And Christian goes into quite a bit of detail here about what that project is, so I won't do that in the intro. But suffice to say, it's an ambitious undertaking. And in his own words, he's at a point with it now where he's a little bit stalled. So it's a really interesting moment to talk to Christian about that project. It's also an interesting moment to talk with Christian because he has just come to Melbourne at the start of 2020 to become a professor in creative writing at the University of Melbourne. And it's been a tough year to be a new resident in Melbourne. So we talk a bit about the depletion of last year and what he worked on, what came of that. Christian reads a couple of poems in this episode as well and he talks about poetry he's envious of he talks a bit about priestly attitudes in poetry as he calls them and the seriousness that he sees in the avant-garde at the moment and towards the end I dig into whether he thinks there's a political element to work such as his I'm excited to put this episode out because I think there will be things in here that challenge you and as Al Phil Reese of uh, Modern and Contemporary American Poetry would say, maybe there'll be things in here that you even disagree a bit with, which would be great. After I finished recording this episode, I went over to my brother's house to see my nephew. And while the adults were sitting around talking about real estate prices in Melbourne and how difficult everything is here, blah, 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 being very adult, my nephew was talking to me and saying things like, Saturn is a planet that has rings. Saturn's rings are made out of ice. (laughs) And I felt as if there was an element of that conversation that kind of connected to this chat with Christian. This is a real zoom out for you. This This is poetry on a truly galactic scale. So I really hope you enjoy it and get as much out of it as I did. Thanks so much for listening. of Preston to chat with me. Alice, I'm very delighted to be here. Thank you for uh, making time for me. It's like, it's quite a surreal moment. Like I wore my Kelly Writers House t-shirt especially, but it is just so strange because yeah, I first, as I said to you before, I first encountered your work as part of the massive open online course, ModPo, Modern Contemporary American Poetry. you're not an American poet, technically, but we did we did study your work, and 
I remember thinking at the time studying Unoya that it was just just a totally like the mind rebels at the scale of that project and then preparing to talk to you today I've come to know a little bit hopefully enough about uh, Xenotext Xenotext? Xenotext? The Xenotext. Xenotext, yes. okay. Uh, the Xenotext and again yeah I'm really I'm really hoping I'm up to the task of asking you about that as well but yeah all of which to say it's just a bit of a surreal feeling that you're sitting in my house <laughs> the world but is small it's, it's true it's actually pretty small yeah um but i'm i'm going to start off my questions with a bit of an epigraph by uh this is a quote from amiri baraka mm-hmm. just came across this this morning but i thought i want to use that when i chat to christian poems are bullshit unless they are teeth and I thought that that was something that like might sort of help frame our conversation because I feel like you are working in almost against a lot of what poets and poetry are doing. And, and I'll dig into that and like back that up a little bit later. But I guess, yeah, my first question I wanted to ask is like, what has it been like to move out of the Canadian and American context and come here to Australia. I know you were in Darwin for a little while and now you're here in Melbourne. It's been a very hard year to come to Melbourne last year. What's it been like to change poetic communities in that way? Well, I have uh, migrated uh, across a lot of poetic communities around the world. Uh, I would like to think that my career has now caused me to become a kind of planetary poet, I suppose. Um, I began life uh, in a small community of peers in Toronto in the late 90s and managed to end up meeting a small coterie of peers in New York City subsequent to that and had the pleasure of founding a poetry movement in the late 90s that has gone on to become uh, the only school of poetry still extant among avant-garde movements in the 21st century. And about 100 years ago at this time, you would have had at least half a dozen different you know, globally renowned experimental movements uh, writing poetry around the world. Mm-hmm. And so far, there's only one uh, in this century. Um, I, I came to prominence in Canadian letters with the publication of my book, Unoya, uh, because I won the Canadian version of the Griffin Prize. And uh, that uh, propelled me to some uh, fame uh, in my homeland and then eventually around the world. Uh, and I've probably depended entirely on the success of that book for any subsequent you know, aspirations in my life. Uh, because of the poetry movement I helped to found, uh, the movement called Conceptualism, I managed to open doors to the American poetic community and uh, uh, earned uh, some uh, credibility in that world. And as a result, I have occasionally been mistaken for an American poet. I'm often appearing on syllabi in American poetry classes, mm-hmm. despite being really a Canadian poet through and through. Um, Canadian uh, literature stems, of course, from a post-colonial context. Uh, it resembles the Australian context very um, uh, much. It's a, it's a very similar history, similar uh, kind of relationship to an imperial power, uh, similar sets of concerns about its national uniqueness and debt to others, um, a similar kind of relationship to its own indigenous populations, uh, similar anxieties about its uh, historical merits. Um, uh, so coming to a place like Australia after conquering North America, uh, 
feels like a return perhaps to the early days of my life uh, in Canada, uh, effectively starting over really, uh, because here I'm not as uh, well uh, received as I might be elsewhere uh, in the world, just because people don't know me so uh, forthrightly here as they do elsewhere. Um, I came to Darwin uh, in uh, Northern Australia so that I could establish a creative writing program from scratch. And I wouldn't have had the freedom to do that in Canada uh, at my home institution or any other place because, of course, uh, every institution probably has uh, a creative writing program already germinating in, in their midst. And uh, there's very few opportunities to establish something uh, absolutely new. Um, so I took that opportunity, even though it extracted me from an otherwise satisfactory job in a, in a comfortable um, location in Canada. Uh, but I was, I don't know, I was midlife, I guess, you know, I was in pursuit of change and felt that uh, my life might otherwise be out of balance. And I was lucky when I moved because uh, at that moment, uh, North America lost its mind. Uh, oh, it was that moment. It's a moment, yeah, around about 2015, 2016. Yeah, okay. Poets start uh, getting canceled. Uh, you know, Donald Trump comes to power. Uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, political upheaval. Uh, in the streets and cultural upheaval in the academy and the galleries. And uh, I don't think I could have uh, survived uh, very adequately in, in the furor of that environment. It would be difficult, I think, to, to function. And many of my peers were finding it very difficult and envied me that I had moved uh, abroad and managed mean, to escape it. So Right. You mean you wouldn't have been able to survive just because of the... Like, what, what would have made it particularly difficult for you? I mean, obviously... Well, uh, yeah. it, the, uh, the, I'm, a, I'm a pretty liberal person. I'm a pretty progressive person. I come from a working class background. Uh, but uh, the nature of the conversations taking place on my team are frightening. <laughs> I mean, like, they're just very difficult uh, to watch. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, uh, I mean, people, there have been casualties. My culture was split in Canada, you know, over numerous controversies. Uh, that uh, really divided the literary community and set people at war with each other, I think, in, uh, in an unneighborly way. And I was grateful not to have to be around for the worst of it, for most of it. But it was very hard to watch because I'm emotionally attached to those communities and uh, friends and peers. And uh, seeing that kind of uh, internecine conflict occurring was very tough. Um, I thrived in Darwin. I liked being there. Uh, but of course, it's a very remote community. It's a frontier. And uh, I, I liked being there because, of course, it's a... It's a tropical paradise. Um, uh, it's full of square pegs in a world of round holes. Uh, I mean, the classic joke, of course, is that everybody there feels like they must be in witness protection, even if they are not. Is that, is that what they say? <laughs> well, I, that's my joke. Like, you know, okay. what are people like in Darwin? I say they're all in witness, well, witness protection. protection. <laughs> they're all in witness protection. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> it's a place where, you know, lots of people, I think, are on the lam uh, from themselves. Doing um, a geographic. Yeah, kind of a, it, it's geographic remoteness and cultural diversity and uh, tolerance for difference is uh, really quite remarkable. It's a very unusual place in, mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, but then uh, this opportunity in Melbourne arose and uh, it was irresistible. Uh, most people in the world wanted to apply for this position and I decided I would try just to you know, experiment with my career path and uh, I got this position. So I'm, now I'm here in Melbourne. But of course, arrived uh, right at the cusp of the pandemic, just as it was start, and the, just as it was starting, and the consequence of which, of course, is that I haven't really very well integrated into uh, life here because of it. Yeah, I just I hate the idea that your very first year in Melbourne, you spent 114 days locked 
in your house, you know, like like we all did. But but what a what a horrible introduction to what is like well, just I, an incredible place to live. I assure you. <laughs> I joked that it was uh, tantamount to being in astronaut training. Right? Yeah, know? that's what it felt like it's to me too. Isolation, yeah. you know, that I'm Brad Pitt floating in uh, yeah. outer space en route to Neptune in, yeah. at Astra. I, if I pretended it was astronaut training, mm. I could deal with the emotional exclusion and isolation of being here. It was okay to uh, tough it out, but it's it's mm. it's not. Um, it's not been an easy uh, transition. Life is very dif- difficult still, and you know, life at, uh, trying to teach and be a, an educator and a poet in this milieu is very hard. I think. Yeah. You know. Well, I was going to ask you about that too because I mean I keep going back to you, Noy, but I I do want to to move on from that because I know that it's you know, mm-hmm. your current project. But that work um, functions within some extreme constraints, not just the use of. A single vowel per chapter but also each chapter has to do certain things has to hit certain markers and you wanted to use 98% of the words available like I said the mind rebels so so there's a there's a factor in your work which thrives in constraint did the constraint of last year prompt you like draw you towards anything any work because everyone else I've spoken to everyone I've spoken to about last year has been like no nah, I didn't write anything I couldn't write. Well, I was preoccupied with maintaining uh, my job. Right, mm. I had to teach into uh, uh, a whirlwind of uh, emergencies mm. and crises, and every day was effectively a, a week-long emergency that needed to be solved in one day. <laughs> uh, every day was a. Uh, I mean, it was, it was the educational equivalent, I think, of doing meatball surgery in a field hospital in a war zone. Right, it really was the educational equivalent of that experience. Wow. Um, uh, uh, the I mean, I, I'm the kind of poet who uh, strives to do impossible things under impossible conditions of duress. Mm-hmm. And certainly a work like Unoya was written under difficult circumstances. It not only you know, reflects uh, uh, an athleticism in its uh, structural features and its various procedural constraints, uh, but it was written um, under uh, conditions of social and emotional duress, uh, a very difficult time in the course of my upbringing in life. You know, it's the start of my career was very difficult. Uh, and uh, it took me seven years to write it. Uh, uh, it was a challenging experience. And I thought afterwards that uh, uh, its success, as improbable as it was, uh, might have validated then subsequent attempts to do things even more aspirational. Mm-hmm. And um, I certainly have done bigger projects that are more difficult, uh, and they're still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I'm regretting, I think, the, the effort it re- required, because, of course, uh, it, it, people get exhausted. I think, you know, uh, last year's uh, um, conditions just uh, depleted people pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, you need, I think, to be able to... Uh, Reforge new steel uh, after every crisis. You have to be able to uh, pour new alloy into the mold. And if you're constantly being battered, right? There's mm-hmm. no there's no opportunity to uh, rebuild a shattered weapon. So it's I think it was, it's not surprising that many people didn't get much accomplished. I, I was creative. I made things. I certainly did a lot of uh, a, a lot of work. But it was all distracted. I mean, it was all uh, uh, deflected from projects that I. You know, would have been preferring to work on, mm-hmm. and um, many of those things I started are still incomplete. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're merely um, wrecks of Chevrolets on you know on uh, the blocks in the backyard. Right? I mean, they're, <laughs> That's right, they're, a very Aussie image. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not 
they're not very complete. And uh, I, I have to have, I, I'm task oriented. I have to finish something in order for me to feel that, uh, uh, a sense of accomplishment and achievement. Okay, well, that's an interesting comment because, so seven years on Unoya, we've been working on the Xenotext by my calculation around the 20 year mark. It, is, it has been the project I've worked on now for 20 years straight. I haven't worked on really anything else. Yeah, yeah. For 20 years I've been working on that project. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been stalled for the last five or six years, mm-hmm. uh, very stalled, mm-hmm. unable to push it forward. And I'm, in, I mean, retroactively I would assess that I'm right, right near the threshold of success. I'm almost done. Yeah. But I can't push this car out of, that's out of gas across the finish line. And the challenge is trying to find the resources and uh, uh, willingness and effort on the part of others to assist me in pushing this thing across the finish line. Yeah. Um, I haven't been able to uh, do so. Every every attempt that looks promising has fallen through or you know, failed in the last five or six years. It's not because I haven't tried to complete uh, the project, uh, but I'm, I'm very close. It's very frustrating to be this close and still not know if it's possible. That's the challenge. Like The, the thing might be impossible. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I can see, you know, that I've accomplished uh, enough that it, it would be uh, unfortunate to get that close to meeting all of the benchmarks of success and not fulfill it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. a very strange thing. I, 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 I wish I hadn't promised so much. You know, I mean, I've accomplished quite a lot of things that are very impressive things that nobody else has ever done in the history of poetry. Mm. But if you promise to put a, a chimp on the moon, uh, nobody is very impressed if you put a chimp in orbit. <laughs> I suppose it's true, but gosh, it's a harsh way of looking at it. Um, my mind is has been, because I've been researching the, the project all week and, and trying to get my head around it, and I still don't feel like I've satisfactorily done that. I kind of feel like Tom, my partner, should be doing this part of the interview because he gets it mm-hmm. on a level that I don't. But for people that don't know about the Xenotex, are you willing and able to give like a small... Sure, I can, I can explain this so that uh, any person with a high school education can understand what I'm doing. Um, For the last 20 years, I've been working on a project uh, that is a kind of scientific experiment undertaken for artistic purposes. Um, I got the idea after reading a couple of essays. Uh, After I had completed Unoya, I was striving to figure out what I might do next. And I read two essays that prompted my imagination. And uh, for years, I kept it secret that I was working on this thing because I didn't know if I was going to be able to acquire this, enough expertise on my own mm-hmm. to even begin it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the two essays, well, uh, one was by an astrophysicist uh, speculating about our search for extraterrestrial intelligence, wondering uh, how we might detect uh, the presence of an alien civilization. And normally we imagine that we'll encounter them uh, by a radio message delivered to us from outer space. Uh, but this, you know, physicist is simply noting that it's probably very difficult to maintain a radio beacon over epochal time uh, and keep it trained on a target civilization for enough time for them to notice it. It's probably pretty challenging to do that. And UFO sightings notwithstanding, it's probably uh, impossible to send large spacecraft across those distances um, in a reasonable time to communicate with uh, a civilization. So chances are it's, it's probably very difficult to, to extend uh, a greeting across the void. Uh, and in fact, since the 1950s, the, the uh, 
primary um, assumption about how we would encounter an alien civilization is that we would encounter their robotic emissaries, we will encounter their probes. And that those probes would likely be very small machines uh, that would be capable of replicating themselves using resources that they would encounter en route throughout the cosmos. And that they would, like a virus, produce copies of themselves uh, after each target civilization was reached. Mm -hmm. They would sit in wait, maybe in an asteroid belt or on some moon, mm -hmm. uh, uh, patiently awaiting the arrival of uh, a civilization capable of recognizing uh, this token in their, in their midst. And uh, that that probe would be able to recommunicate with its uh, mother civilization. And that it would only take a few tens of millions of years to colonize the galaxy with such devices. Um, now, we don't seem to see any presence of that. Like, there's no evidence yet discovered that somewhere in the solar system is a, is a probe awaiting our discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was the primary um, assumption about how we would encounter civilizations. And uh, uh, this particular astrophysicist, however, thought well, such machines already exist. And they take the form of spores and viruses and living things that are capable of reproducing themselves. They transmit uh, information through their genomes uh, across generations. And it could be conceivable that uh, an advanced civilization might encipher messages into the genomes of viruses that are highly adaptable to the various um, ecosystems or environments that they might encounter and would integrate themselves into those ecosystems and just sit and wait for a civilization that is smart enough with fast enough computers and smart enough geneticists to recognize its presence there. Uh, it could be that some graduate student in the future, after taking a census of every life form on this planet and running some supercomputer through its vast repertoire of gene banks, might discover some unusual gene sequence that would be sufficiently improbable as to contain a message from outer space. And that's what he thought was the, going to be the um, primary means by which we could imagine communicating with another civilization. It could be that those messages are already here, buried somewhere in a primitive germ or, or a spore or a virus somewhere in the Earth's ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Now that's an absolutely extravagant speculation. It is pretty extravagant. That's an extravagant speculation. Yeah. yeah. But I will note that uh, in the 1970s, the very first uh, uh, virus had its genome sequenced, um, and uh, the person who did that received a Nobel Prize. It was a very short gene sequence, but at the time, uh, the genetic engineers were dismayed to s by its efficiencies, uh, which should have evolved out uh, through natural selection. Uh, this, this organism was extremely vulnerable to um, mutational drift and yet it seemed to be pretty robust despite uh, these vulnerabilities. And its efficiencies were uh, kind of unnatural. There, were, there was no way to explain through evolutionary science how this uh, virus could sustain these efficiencies. And the consequences of which is that they thought for a while it might be engineered. It might in fact be that message from outer space. Mm. And a few articles did in fact get published in which scientists made an effort to see if it actually contained a message from outer space. Mm. Very odd thing to imagine that early in the days of genetic engineering, uh, this they was went straight there. They went straight <laughs> to that story, right? That story is quite an extraordinary um, yeah. uh, feature of, of of our past. Now, I also read an essay at the time uh, by a scientist in uh, Northwestern United States uh, who was working at a laboratory trying to figure out ways to improve the storage of information against uh, disasters, really big disasters, like mm -hmm. thermonuclear warfare, 
our astrophysical barrage, something that would actually wipe out you know, human civilization? How might we protect our culture against disasters like that so that if there are any survivors, they could reconstitute it? And um, he had demonstrated that you could encipher information into the genomes of a relatively resilient bacterium um, capable of surviving in all kinds of very hostile conditions and that you, you could then retrieve that message. So um, uh, he th uh, demonstrated very um, uh, uh, forthrightly that it was possible to store information in a genetic sequence and then reconstitute it later uh, and that the message would in fact be uh, preserved uh, exactly as he had intended it to be stored. And given that this was a very robust organism capable of surviving in all kinds of hostile environments, uh, you could conceivably use it as a durable means for, uh, for um, creating a kind of library. Uh, now, uh, there's an ethical dimension to projects like this because, of course, we have no means to protect our culture against uh, planetary disasters. And uh, there's a lot of cosmic threats out in the universe that uh, still await us. And uh, it would be a shame you know, to have accomplished so much as a species, you know, the theory of relativity, the standard model of physics, uh, the, the concertos of, uh, of Mozart, um, you know, the, the, the plays of Shakespeare, those things are uh, uh, enduring legacies that should be preserved for all time, and yet we have no way to guarantee their survival. Um, in fact, as it stands right now, if humanity were to disappear tomorrow, uh, the only uh, evidence of our presence upon the planet, on the terrestrial surface of the planet, say six billion years from now, when the near, near the time when the sun might destroy the Earth, um, there would be only three uh, characteristics of our of evidence, three three examples of evidence that we were ever here, uh, because all of the cities, every object that we've built, uh, every single uh, thing, would be ground into a virtually undetectable layer of uh, sediment that would have disappeared into the geological record virtually undetectably. But if uh, aliens came by to visit a few billion years from now and you know, uh, were to look at the planet Earth uh, in our absence, uh, they would notice uh, three bits of evidence that would suggest there was a, uh, a race of super predators you know, who for a while you know, commanded this world. A virus with yeah. shoes, as Bill Hicks would have it. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah. Um, that uh, uh, there would be uh, an exorbitant amount of um, uh, radioactive waste uh, from uh, purified plutonium that would still be extant in the fossil record, and that there would be no natural reason for the uh, levels of that radiation to be so high, except, of course, through um, technological uh, rarefication of that material. So our, our industrial waste from nuclear physics. Mm -hmm. Uh, in addition, uh, the fossil record would contain all the evidence of a mass extinction caused by us uh, currently underway, and uh, uh, there would be no associated astrophysical phenomenon or climactic phenomenon that would necessarily explain it. And then in addition to that, the evidence of climate change, again, would have no astrophysical uh, phenomenon associated with it. Um, all of that would testify probably to uh, the presence of an advanced technological civilization that kind of wrecked things. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty damning legacy that we're going to leave. It, it would be a damning legacy. Yeah. Now, um, bear in mind that's the, just on the surface of the Earth. Mm. Uh, we've left our junk around you know, the solar system, yeah. on other planets. Those things will persist and actually provide more direct evidence of our presence in the solar system, mm -hmm. including the satellites and the Clark Belt, you know, where, we, where we store junk satellites. Those places will be around you know, for billions of years and provide evidence of our 
presence. And then, uh, you know, if, if they're lucky, uh, they might find uh, the Voyager probes or the Pioneer probes, uh, you know, en route to their yeah. various star systems. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, mm. what about Voyager? <laughs> Come on! Well, to me, uh, the Voyager probe, for example, is the most important object ever created on yeah, the planet yeah. Earth. I regard that as the most important artwork ever made, yeah. and probably the most important object ever made. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, in the wake of our extinction, uh, those objects will persist, preserving human voices, um, human greetings, uh, sounds of our planet, um, uh, expressions of art and music, um, a few uh, photographic records of our experience, and um, that, that will become the most valuable testament to our uh, enduring presence mm -hmm. in the universe. Uh, I have a great deal of affection for those machines because of that. Mm. And I, you know, I think that they, they outclass everything else that we've made uh, by orders of magnitude. Now, uh, you know, I read these two articles, um, and you know, the, there's an imagining that uh, we have the technological capacity to uh, store information in genomes, and uh, you know the, that we could find evidence of an extraterrestrial civilization trying to communicate through such a means with us. And I thought, well, why wait? Let's let's actually be that civilization, and let's get poetry involved at the inception of that civilization. Mm -hmm. So. Um, now, at the time, there were, there were artists and writers had demonstrated that they could store information in genomes, and you could reconstitute it. You could build little books out of life forms. And uh, the genetic code consists of um, uh, four molecules, uh, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, that make up the rungs in the um, uh, ladder, the little twisted ladder of, of DNA that you see in cartoons and uh, illustrations of our uh, genetic heritage. The little rungs in that ladder are made out of these four molecules. And uh, together they make words, uh, three-letter words, called codons. And there are 64 three-letter words. Most of them are um, words that mean something. They actually refer to the creation of a protein, they can uh, amino acid, uh, the component parts of a protein. They, they, they encode information for making. Uh, a little element in a chain link protein. And then a few of the words are themselves punctuation marks that tell the uh, machine to start and stop. Um, now, it's an amazing thing to imagine that if you have a repertoire of 64 three-letter words, you can uh, express every single living thing on the planet. You can describe it and uh, produce the extraordinary richness and uh, lush variety of life that has now characterized uh, the entirety of evolution on this planet. That's an extraordinary thing. I don't think if I said to you, pick your 64 most favorite three-letter words and then write as, ma as many beautiful poems as there are life forms, I think you would find that extraordinarily heartbreaking thing to do. I don't think it's possible, but you yeah. know, life has found a way to do something that dramatic, that poetic, mm -hmm. with just 64 three-letter words. It can make everything that you see that is alive around you. Now, uh, what I have done uh, is something very complicated. Uh, I've written a poem uh, uh, in which I've assigned a letter of the alphabet to one of those uh, codons, those little three-letter words. And uh, um, by doing so, uh, I can write a poem that's very short and makes perfect sense. And uh, I can turn it into a sequence of gen genetic material, and then with the assistance of a laboratory, you can build that gene 
and implant it into the genome of a cell, inserting it just as you would any other genetic information, splice it into the little film strip of its, uh, of its instruction set. And um, all other artists and poets uh, and writers who've done that have isolated that sequence so the organism can't detect it, won't read it. But in my case, I've, I've, I've made it possible for the organism to read my poem. Mm -hmm. So the organism is now the, a living embodiment of the text. It's a work of living poetry. But it also reads the poem. And the genetic information is just a set of instructions as far as that uh, organism is concerned. So it reads my poem and it misinterprets it as a set of instructions. And it builds a protein out of it. A protein is just a long sequence of molecules called amino acids and chained together that folds up like a little origami bike chain made out of magnets. You, know, you can imagine making a bike chain out of magnets and suddenly the bike chain all folds up into a clump. Mm -hmm. That would be what a protein really is. And in this case, the sequence of amino acids in that protein created, uh, they likewise encipher a totally different poem that also makes sense mm -hmm. and that you can conceivably read. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've effectively designed an organism that could become an archive, not only to store my poem, but it becomes also a machine for writing a poem in response that's in dialogue with my work. Two poems are very hard to write, though. It's, uh, it took me four years to figure out how to get these two poems. Because they uh, have to, to... There's a cryptographic element here, too, where they have to match each other. Yes, there's a, kind, there's a cryptographic relationship between these two yeah. poems, and they have to be written according to the biochemical constraints of the living processes that mm -hmm. uh, govern how that gene gets translated into a protein. Mm -hmm. So the poems uh, are now um, in dialogue, I guess, with the genetic code, right? They really are. Uh, uh, it's me trying to figure out how to uh, get English, an English text to somehow um, function like a, like a gene sequence mm -hmm. in this organism so that it will translate it into yet another protein sequence that is likewise a poem. And when people ask me, what does that mean? What exactly are you doing? I, I use an analogy. I say, look, um, imagine assigning to every letter of the alphabet some other letter of the alphabet. Uh, but you encipher that arrangement in such a way that uh, they're, they're mutually correlated. So if I assign the letter A to T, I have to assign the letter T to A. If I assign the letter H to E, I have to assign the letter E to H. Uh, so that's a subset of all of the possible uh, codes that you could create. Um, and it just so happens there's a little less than 8 trillion different ways of enciphering the alphabet according to that right. constraint. Right. And that's, was that the point at which you were like, I need to learn computer programming so I can get some help in like narrowing this down? So yes, not only did I have to teach myself some principles of genetic engineering mm -hmm. and proteomic engineering, but I also had to teach myself uh, computer programming skills in order to be able to build some of the tools needed to do this project. Uh, there are about 8 trillion different ciphers uh, to explore in this, uh, in this particular arrangement. And what I'm effectively saying is, okay, imagine picking one of those ciphers out of the 8 trillion through a process of heuristics and you know, rules of thumb. Kind of pick one, maybe at random. And now write a poem that's beautiful in such a way that if uh, you were to uh, swap out every letter in that poem and replace it with a, uh, a letter from your cipher, you get a new poem mm. that's still just as beautiful and still makes sense and is in dialogue with the first poem. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty difficult constraint. I, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. Like I, There was a time when I, as a kid when it 
when you're solving cryptograms, uh, say in a Sunday yeah. newspaper, yeah. you know you get a, a a message that looks like nonsense. But if you analyze the letter patterns and letter frequencies, you can substitute for the letters in that nonsense other letters that uh, correspond to them, and you can derive a message from it. And I used to wonder. Uh, somewhat fiendishly as a kid, why the puzzle designer didn't give us a, a message that likewise makes sense. To start with. It looks like a message that makes sense, but if we analyze the letter patterns and letter frequencies, we don't understand that we could swap out other letters for those ones that are given to us mm -hmm. and produce a new message that is in fact the intended secret message. But now I understand why puzzle it's designers can't do hard. that. Yeah. It's, it's not why, it's like, I don't know why it would, wouldn't have occurred to anybody, but I, I now understand why that problem is very difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked for four years on nothing else but that those two poems. This is before you've even thought about implanting, it, done any experiments in any lab, you're just working on the That's poems right. that will talk to each other. That's right. That's which you called Orpheus and Eurydice. That's right. The, yeah. you know, the, the poems, as it turns out, uh, have uh, this kind of infernal characteristic to them that they uh, function within a tradition of pastoral dialogue uh, in which uh, a herd boy addresses a nymphet and the nymphet uh, re rebuffs the advances of the herd boy. Uh, it's a kind of little pastoral dialogue that yeah. recurs throughout the history of uh, uh, romantic and pastoral poetry. Yeah, right. Uh... I want to ask you to read soon because mm. we should do that. Um, but you mentioned beauty when you're describing the poems that mm -hmm. you were trying to write. And, and part of the reason that, that I wanted to talk to you today is because your work came up in an interview I did about a month ago with uh, uh, another academic called Justin Clemens. And we were speculating about your work and saying, I wonder... You know, is it just the constraint and is it just the experimentation or does beauty matter to Christian? And I think, you know, you've sort of answered that for me that it very much does matter that, that the work that comes out of all this isn't, it's not just the idea and it's not just the execution of the idea. The result also has to be beautiful. Yeah, these two poems uh, are not typical of the kinds of work I typically do, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, they're fragile and they're beautiful. Um, uh, the... They, they came about as a side effect of this exploration of the various vocabularies. And I spent four years working on trying to derive these two poems, failing miserably. I couldn't find even a single phraseology from any of the ciphers that would permit me to say two meaningful things, and certainly not things that would be equally interesting um, and in dialogue with each other. I was getting very worried. And the largest vocabulary I had at my disposal was about uh, 750 words, mm -hmm. and it was useless. And I, would, I was beginning to work down right from the largest available vocabularies that would fit this constraint to the you know, ones that are smaller. Mm -hmm. And late in that project, it was down to vocabularies that were at the very fringes, 120 words. They're like at the fringes now of my ex exploration space. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hit, I hit upon uh, a very unlikely cipher that uh, generated uh, a very interesting vocabulary that was just useful enough mm. in its uh, 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 syntax that I could say uh, two things. And it, as it turns out, they're the only two poems that are possible, probably, according to this constraint. So what makes these poems interesting to me, and many people have dismissed them, and they've found you know, lots of reasons to find fault with the project and, and these works, but they fail to understand, I think, that what is miraculous to me about them is that I haven't written them. I have discovered them. Yeah, they're just there. They are buried yeah. in the imminently within the English language. Mm -hmm. uh, they, are, they are implicit within the nature of this alphabetical constraint. They're there 
to be found. And there are eight trillion possible universes. And in all of them, there are no poetry. There's no poetry. There's lots of nonsense. Mm. Right? There's lots of uh, mutational you know, uh, screw-ups. But, but what's crazy is you could have just been satisfied with the nonsense. You know, I mean, you probably couldn't have, but one could have just gone, I'm going to put some words inside a inside this um, bacteria and it's going to replicate and it's going to produce other words and that's enough and you know somebody will notice that it's a message but you absolutely didn't stop there no uh, uh, because uh, I mean I polarized the opinions of critics and I wanted to make sure that uh, these works were kind of inviolable in their quality Mm -hmm. Um, now uh, sure I could have produced uh, nonsense but uh, which which nonsense among all of it is the best? Probably yeah. none of it, right? Like yeah. it, was, it would have been a random choice anyway. Then, mm-hmm. really, uh, it would be tantamount to writing Yunoya according to its constraints, without all of the syntactical and meaningful substantive, you know, thematic concerns yeah. of that book. Yeah. Sure, I could have written nonsense, but nobody would care. Mm-hmm. Um, what's magical about it is that just in in our galaxy, there are probably trillions of worlds. There may be eight trillion worlds. Uh, most of them probably aren't life-bearing, or if they do bear life, it's probably you know disposable, bacteriological one-cell life. You know that uh, is probably uh, not so uh, intriguing after a while. Um, yet uh, here, uh, you know, among the eight trillion worlds, one of them has poetry. One has a and it and it's a poem about a story that's immensely powerful in the tradition of poetry. You know, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. These two poems speak in that tradition to each other. And there's a kind of infernal dimension to this work because they're going to be placed in a bacterium that can survive in all kinds of hostile environments. You could scorch it, freeze it, wither it, it won't die. You know, you can blast it with a thousand times the dosage of gamma radiation that would instantly obliterate a human being, and this organism continues to survive. Uh, it resists uh, mutational drift, so it repairs its own DNA quickly enough that it doesn't change. It's so, yet it's so well adapted to the utter lethality of the universe that it can survive in the open vacuum of outer space and not die. Mm-hmm. And by putting my poem into this bacterium, I'd effectively be writing a book that could outlast our civilization, it might be on the planet Earth when the sun explodes. I'm trying to write a poem that lasts forever. And the two poems, you know, they speak to each other, this little love poem for all time. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the first poem by Orpheus, it uh, begins, Any style of life is prim. That's, that's how the poem begins. And that poem is a kind of masculine meditation about the power of poetry to magically create life, right? To summon, I guess, you know, uh, living things from the dead. Mm-hmm. In the way that life already has, right? It transforms these inert molecules into things that think and are alive. Um, uh, and yet uh, the poem Eurydice begins, The fairy is rosy of glow. And it's a feminine refutation of that claim, showcasing the degree to which, of course, you know, all things must die and disappear and are returned, right, to uh, their hellish forebears, right? And it's a sad response to uh, the powerful claim that uh, that words have the power to create life, and then there's this refutation, and they, they will sing this to each other over and over again. Mm. Um, when the poem begins writing that phrase, the fairy is rosy of glow, the protein that it produces causes the organism to glow red in the dark so you can actually see uh, that the organism is writing the poem that it is singing because it's got this little fey rubescent uh, glow to it that it mentions within the poem itself now I've gotten the whole thing to work properly in a, in a microorganism and uh, 
that would be great. I mean, I'm the first poet in human history to make a microbe write poetry and speak about itself right doing so. But mm-hmm. um, I didn't promise to do just that. I promised that I would write a book that would last forever, that would endure, you know, in the fires of perdition for all time. And uh, I haven't quite got that to work properly yet. It, it's um, uh, I've gotten two of the three benchmarks of success, but I have to get all three for me to, to feel like I can publish the result and say I win. Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm not winning. You know, the, the bacterium, this little organism is a tiny god. It's a very old creature. It's like a dragon. You know, it's a, I'm trying to appease a little god. And, you know, people are, they would dismiss me saying I'm, I'm bending this organism to my will. And I say, it's the other way around. You don't seem to understand that it's the organism bending me to its will. Mm. Uh, I have to appease it. You know, I have to, you know, court its uh, favor, you know, with treasure and effort and time. You know, and I haven't obviously satisfied the sacrifices required of me to make it work. So that's where I'm at with that right now. You know, it's a it's a big project. And and <laughs> that's, that's the understatement of the century. Mm. <laughs> it's a big project. Um, I'd I'd love to get you to read something now. Sure. Uh, I'm gonna if you'd like I'm gonna read a, uh, some poetry. There's satellites around this work that, that that are informed by it. Great. Right? Okay, but that are not you know directly responsible. To, you know, they're they're the kinds of work that are intended to prop up these two little poems. They provide context for it. They think about it out loud. Okay. Um, because I, I've um, mentioned, of course, this myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, I'm gonna write recite a poem, a love poem, uh, that. Um, uh, speaks to that uh, mythic tradition. Great. A nocturne for Eurydice. Twilight through the roof of a rainforest shatters like a chandelier of green glass. The shrillness strafed by keening cicadas and unseen flocks of cockatoos that caw their catcalls at the meltdown of the sun. Dimming of the day bronzes a pathway that we follow under vaults of Buyong down a terraced stairway to this canyon of warm mist where a waterfall loiters draped in a grotto like a soaked sarong. Shadows deepen the tinges of each fern to jade while we descend into the nave of this cavern where paramours gather, unmournful, by the cascade to witness the arrival of bright nymphs at nightfall. Prattle, muttered by the gentle shower in its pool of shade, softens our voices while we wait, rebuking the ruby glow from a camera, its lamplight forbidden, a red ray doused to darken the drama. Lovers who kiss near the railing confess their joy upon seeing the mossy shine of dew luminescent on the black walls of rock. These blurry photos of bijoux mimicking shimmers on radium clocks. Umbral the day glow from every fay fly stipples the cave, pinpricking crevices with a spray as numinous as absinthe, the basalt hung with threads of saliva like dewdrops bedewing a spider web. 
Wonder spins a tinsel that embroiders our mood as we marvel at this roomful of minuscule creatures, each flea as far from us as a star, whose constellations loom over us, guiding us to our doom. Glyphs unreadable by the wispy gleam of foxfire foretell no fortunes for souls who appear with their private oracles to view these tapestries, then file by us like a queue of lanterns leaving a mine. Bereft of our path when left in the dark, we take delight that blind at the entry to this shrine, we find a dim dot of red taking flight a match head lit in a waft of perfume, its spark lifted like a kite. Adrift, the speck is our distant galleon, with sails ablaze at night upon a black ocean, a feeble beacon whose glimmer disputes the puniness of living things that strain to remain afloat in the void. Clouds of pollen orbiting the orchids ignite, then cavort alongside the banks of the cataract, each downslope aglow with muddled smudges from luciferin in green fungi, blemishes of limelight. Unease amid this awe that consoles us still impels me to grope for a guardrail retaking your hand in mine to guide us like a blind man up a cliffside staircase, unseeing in the blackness what awaits. Lovers know that of all demons in hell, love is the most dire, duty-bound to tear all spirits to tatters, to spare no thought for the remnants of misspent romances which defy the gods, but end in despair. Deeper than this ravine with its river flows a duller stream of forgetfulness, our dream like some oasis from chaos where devils avow that if love is woe, best then to dwell alone in the cosmos. Regret is the ember that calls the moth to burn in the spittle of a glowworm. Let me keep my faith aloft like a flame, my firm gaze unreturning to this rift behind us at the blind spot of my loss. Let me promise bravely to uphold you, though we falter at the threshold when we cross. Thank you. I don't know quite what I was expecting, but I was not expecting a love poem. Um, I had my pen poised the whole time because I was going to try to figure out what the rhyme scheme was. Uh, well, there's, a, of course, uh, some constraints at play within the work, as you might hear, but mm. uh, there is, in fact, uh, no rhyme scheme. It's all uh, musically inflected uh, recurrences of sound that occur uh, at intervals that are not uh, thoroughly predetermined by metrical constraints. 
Wow, that is surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is very surprising. Um, there's there's two things I wanted to ask you about that. There's, there's a smaller question and a bigger question. The smaller question is about performance. Mm-hmm. I've heard you, and this might seem like a side issue, but I feel like it is important to address. I, I heard you talking at the writer's house. Um, this is many years ago now that you were there talking about this, but you spoke about what it's like to be at a poetry reading and we talked a little bit before about you know watching people shuffle papers and like trip over their own words and and things like that and you spoke about the importance of being able to read your own work well is that and that was a session that you were at in 2009 so your opinions on this might have changed but how do you how do you think about that now because it seems like you have put a lot of work into being able to read your poems as well as you do uh, the performance of a poem is tantamount to the last line in a syllogism arguing on its behalf. Uh, the merits of your performance, I think, reveal something about your investment of time and labor and energy uh, that uh, if you take the work seriously enough to perform it well, then surely people will have find cause then to read it themselves. They'll may, maybe want to go and revisit it. Mm-hmm. If you misperform it, then it might suggest that it's not worth the effort required to go and revisit it. Mm. Um, Now, that's not to say that people should become good performers of their own work. In many cases, there are lots of people who think are uh, too stage frightened or introverted, perhaps, to uh, dwell upon their work in public. But uh, uh, I think that if you are going to uh, showcase that work, then the performance constitutes a way of bringing it to life and animating it. And uh, the caliber of your performance demonstrates uh, something of, of its merits. It shows, I think, your willingness to invest effort uh, in order to do it right. Um, now, again, it, it, no, composers of music don't have to perform their own music. Um, you know, the chicken that lays the eggs doesn't need to make the omelet, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I um, about it that way, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, uh, if you're, I mean, poets are often called upon, right, to to justify their work through performance. Yeah. And I, I just think it's, it's one way in which we argue on behalf of the work. And as poets, we're constantly arguing on behalf of the work, if only in the merits of its composition. Right? We, we try to say that the work is worth the effort uh, in, by, by bringing our best selves to it. Mm. So I, I think it's just an extension of that. That's why I say it's, it's kind of like the last line in a syllogism mm. in which you argue on behalf of your own work. Yeah, that right. is what it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You're saying this is worth listening to. I, I would like to think that the, the most accomplished poets would mm-hmm. uh, make that argument. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, po- the performance of poetry is a different set of skills than the composition of poetry. Mm-hmm. And it could be that uh, seeing the work performed by the author is not the right way in which to present it to the world. It could be that you get somebody else to do it on your behalf, perhaps, mm-hmm. or that um, uh, it, it persists you know, in, a, in a milieu that's not uh, enlivened by the, you know, the animated speaker. It could be that it, it, you know, should be discovered in the book, you know, on the page mm-hmm. uh, f- for yourself. Um, most poems, though, I think, are scores for uh, utterance, you know, that they constitute a, um, a reliving of another person's mind aloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, um, as you might guess from the one I just read, part of the reason I've read it, I think it's got auditory music, it's... Intended, I think, to be a you know a, a evocative uh, phonic event. Right? I'm mm. trying trying to you know persuade somebody I care about. 
yeah. <laughs> Say something nice. Yeah. And uh, like it to be beautiful, right? Yeah. Um, the bigger question is, I wonder, given the effort that you have gone to in the past and you are currently going to, um, to realize the project of Xenotext, um, how do you look at, uh, a new collection of lyric poetry that comes out from you know, new first time poet, like <laughs> when you, when you see that. And I also, this came to me as I was preparing to, um, cause I was thinking about Mod Poe and I was thinking about Al and all the various poems that he introduced us to. And there was one poet called Erica, Erica Baum. Yes. Erica Baum. She's a marvelous, marvelous poet. Great, right. great artist. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm really glad that you, that you know her work because she has a collection, a set of poems called dog ear, mm-hmm. which is just the folding of, um, the top, you know, like making a dog ear in a book, they're paper fold poems. The amount of effort that that takes to do that up against the Xenotext, how do you think about that? Well, I wish I had thought of that idea first. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Erica, I have that book, Dog Ear. I love that book. Right. Uh, I'm quite envious of that project. Yeah, I was uh, too when we were introduced to Sure. It. I mean, uh, uh, typically the work I like is work that I wish I had done. Right. Um, most of my books on my bookshelf are collected in part because they are works of poetry that I wish I had written myself. Mm-hmm. And when I have listed books, uh, thinking these all should have won awards in the last 20 years, uh, uh, I've done that. So here I think is the books that, I, that should have won awards in Canada. These, if I was, if I was the juror, if it was, the, if there was a Christian book prize, the book prize or something, mm-hmm. uh, I would have awarded these books as the winners. Mm-hmm. But the reason I would is that I, these are all books that I really wish I had written, mm-hmm. um, to the exclusion of other books uh, that were published in Canada. Um, and I, I think that if I'm looking at a, a new work. I pick up a book of poetry. Um, I'm curious to know if it's a book I would have wanted to write myself, mm-hmm. not because it's written in my style or in something that uh, uh, conforms to my own set of aesthetic prejudices, but because uh, it it has um, inspired me uh, with a kind of generative set of permissions mm-hmm. about something I didn't think to do that would have been fun to do or you know interesting you know, yeah. to, to aspire to do. Uh, the worst experience, I think, is to discover a really good idea squandered. Now, I hate discovering that uh, kind of project, you know, where somebody has come up with a really fantastic idea uh, that I think is enviable and then really squandered it, n- not done a very good job of it. And I look and say, I could have done that better. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel like that when I look at the project. What I want to look at is a project where I think, wow, that's amazing, and I wish I had done it. And it's done so much better than I think I could have imagined doing it. I'm very envious of that project. I think all the books I have on my bookshelf are works that I envy. Mm-hmm. How about that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would say another problem that arises uh, because of my experience now having read lots of poetry is that if I pick up a book of poetry and I open it and I think, oh, I've seen all these words before, I've seen them all in this order before, right? I've seen these words, you know, before. If there's that sense of deja vu promptly, then I'm, I'm less inspired by the work. I'm less interested, I think. And uh, it's a hard thing, right, to uh, do something that doesn't induce deja vu. Right? Doesn't you know? Doesn't you know? Call upon a, a repertoire of language that we already have rehearsed and 
you know, the, the resorts to imagery or uh, circumstances that are, you know, kind of repeatable, reiterable. Uh, it's rare that you get a something that uh, uh, is uncanny, sublime, beautiful, strange, mm -hmm. uh, that um, uh, is inspiring, you know, it becomes a model. And I, I do read a lot of poetry, I suppose, in the same way that a carpenter might look at chairs, right? You know, I'm wondering, how's that put together? How'd that get, you know, made? Uh, because I'm looking for new tools and new techniques, new skills all the time. Mm. You know, I'm really reading everything else, uh, like, a, like a chef tasting somebody else's meal, wondering, wondering how, do I, how do I build this better, right? Yeah. right? If it's good, how do I make it better? Yeah. Um, and there are lots of writers right now uh, whose practice is uh, very enviable to me. I'm quite impressed by the quality of their uh, achievements. Mm. But, but thankfully, they're you know they're doing that work you know that I don't so I don't have to do it. I yeah. guess yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they filled a niche that I that I that I now know exists, and I wish I was occupying that niche. But no, they've occupied they're it. They're doing it, yeah. Um, yeah, you meant you mentioned fun in there, like if an idea was was fun to execute, mm -hmm. and I was reading. Perhaps this was in the interview that you gave at the writer's house, but. You were, you were talking at the start about this group of artists that you started out with and you said, you know, when we started out, we kind of made a promise to each other that we wouldn't pursue something unless it was, it had a sense of fun <laughs> in it. Um, and I feel like that's, that might be something that gets missed when people think and talk about your work is that it is, I mean, you know, you've been toiling for 20 years on this project, but it's there was the sense of fun was what sparked it and the work around it, you know. Yeah, I mean, much of it has not been very much fun. Right. But yeah. uh, the, the, the test here is of uh, language's um, versatility under duress. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, disc I'm making discoveries. And uh, I have faith that the language is superior to the constraints imposed upon it, that somehow it's more godlike than anything that would try to suppress it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm still holding out hope that I can make it work, right? Despite the challenges that await. Um, and I mean, it's fun to overcome a challenge, mm -hmm. uh, especially one that's right at the limits of your aptitudes. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, that's what makes the project a little bit exciting is, is whether or not it can be done or not. I mean, I still don't know if it's, if it's actually possible yet. And I'm wasting 20 years of a, a life on something that might turn out to be truly impossible is not uh, is frightening. I must admit, it's not it's not fun in that sense. But the discoveries that get made, right, uh, en route, those those often justify some of the um, sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, certainly, among my peers, I enjoy those peers who have a playful dimension to their personalities and their attitudes towards work. I would say that among avant-garde poets, uh, generally, their their work suffers from a lethal dose of seriousness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would suggest, too, that uh, there is currently a trend among artists to supplant the artistic attitudes with more priestly attitudes, that perhaps there are fewer artists than there are priests now in priests. our midst. Wow, that's a great word. You know, that, uh, well, I think an artist is concerned about talent. An artist is concerned about cultivating talent. A priest is concerned about cultivating virtue. And I think that among poets now, for whatever reason, we have um, a tipping of the scales toward uh, uh, sentiments that support virtue, not talent, that we are cultivating priests, not artists, that it's probably more important to have, think the right thoughts and, and write the right words to express them than to um, uh, cultivate the skills that you don't know you have. 
um, and and discover what you know you can't say, right? Discover what you th- what 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 goes unsaid and you didn't even know you could say. Mm-hmm. Right? The the experimental dimension of what we do seems to be constantly uh, diverted. Um, I've, I used to frame this argument in terms of uh, uh, two choices you can make as a romantic poet. Mm-hmm. And I think we all are romantics at heart when we start writing poetry, aren't we? Aren't we all? I mean, I, geez, I just read a poem to you that, that's undoubtedly informed right, that by a, a truly classic romantic attitude. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, you choose your own weapons. Uh, and uh, most of us, I think, end up choosing um, what William Wordsworth would describe as the egotistical sublime. Mm-hmm those modes of self-expression uh, where the poet uh, pays homage to the sincerity and authenticity of their voice and experience. And uh, there's two ways to do that. Um, one is conscious and one is unconscious. The conscious one, of course, is emotion recollected in tranquility. Uh, that's the romantic facet of the egotistical sublime. The other is unconscious. It's the uh, spontaneous outburst of feeling and that is, you know, also uh, uh, via Wordsworth, one of the uh, ways in which we uh, give vent to the egotistical sublime. Uh, but that's not the that's not that's only one romantic di- uh, path that can be pursued. Uh, the other path is cultivated by John Keats, and that would be the models of negative capability, in which the ego gets sublimated so that forces larger than the self can find you as their means of expression, um, and you become available to a variety of selves that uh, 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 deploy you as their, as their model of expression. And um, uh, that path, the path of Wordsworth leads to the history of lyrical confessionalism and probably ends in the Hallmark greeting card, but in, 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 I'm sorry, I'm being facetious. It's a joke. Um, Whereas a negative capability, you know, the Keatsian model of romanticism, I think, leads to the eventual forms of the avant-garde or the objective correlative, the detached uh, um, um, writer who is uh, attempting to uh, call forces uh, to life that are not part of the self, right? To uh, delegate uh, the creativity to something else, forces bigger than us. Um, and uh, that's the tradition and history of more experimental practices. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, both of these are perfectly adequate ways to be poets. There's nothing wrong with either of them. However, I think that there's a deep suspicion among the egotistical sublime of everything that pertains to the negative to negative capability. That negative capability is a forfeiture of the self, and and uh, that that is a great act of treachery, perhaps, uh, to uh, human expression. And as a consequence, uh, the, there's a uh, like the there's a great deal of suspicion or wariness around everything that's playful and experimental and and um, uh, exploratory, speculative, uh, and generative. I say that you have a choice between doing something that's expressive and a choice of doing something that's generative. Mm-hmm. And I've always erred probably on the side of the generative. I don't talk about myself in my poetry. I'm always trying to make discoveries. Well, I was yeah. That, what you're saying just now reminds me of something I read in a um, a review of Xenotextbook One in Jacket. Mm-hmm. And that was talking about because I think when we when we encounter that sort of generative um, evacuated self kind of mode of working, um, I say we. I don't really know who I'm referring to with that, but like there's an impulse to go looking for the poet, 
mm-hmm. and be like, where, where are you? I know you're in there. Mm-hmm. You've made decisions about yeah, how sure. you got here. And, mm-hmm. and um, what that reviewer also said was, you know, there, there is a lot of work that purports to evacuate the self, but then there's a lot of talking around it about, you know, I, I did this and these were my means. And, you know, so the, the poet comes back in the sort of surrounding discussion. I'm trying to come around to this idea of even if the work is not working in that priestly mode, if it's looking at skill, if it's looking at talent, do you think there are still political decisions being made? Oh, I, I might argue now that poetry seems to be suffering from a lethal dose of politics, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that uh, there's no room to be made for something just to be beautiful. For example, okay. Okay. there's no room for something just to exist on its own terms in the world, right? I mean, there's nothing political about a flower, a rose growing in the garden, really. I mean, it could grow wild, it could be cultivated, sure. I mean, maybe, you know, it, uh, it takes up space, I don't know. But the thing is that it's not, it's not the product of itself in its growing, a political maneuver, right? I mean, it's, I mean, life, I've argued elsewhere, is a kind of perfect malware. I mean, it's just, its just job is to thrive and survive wherever it can mm-hmm. and testify to itself. And poetry is akin to that. To me, it's, it's like an extremophile. It loves extremes and aspires to occupy all, all its niches that are available to it. Uh, it tampers with everything, right? It, it picks things up and tastes them all, right? Like it just, it's, it, it's exploratory. Like it, it's kind of a... We live, in a, we live in an environment that's at the infinite disposal of curiosity. And right now, there's an attempt to shut down a lot of curiosity about things, right? You know, and, and under the guise of, of political purity, perhaps, or political um, uh, uh, activism of sorts, like, like trying, trying to change the world, that the poem should change the world. And um, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, it's the kind of uh, um, vaunted question about what the role of poetry might be. And I think every definition of, of poetry is right. There's no wrong definitions uh, that poetry can be correct in whatever it tends to do. Um, but I, I do think that there's an, there's an attempt to render those uh, definitions of poetry relatively confined and narrowed to uh, a, a, you know, a specific set of properties or functions mm-hmm. uh, uh, while ignoring you know, the um, w- w- veritable welter of things right, uh, that poetry can do. Great poet, uh, you know, of course, once noted that uh, poetry's never stopped a tank. Right? Seamus Haney mm. says, you know, poetry's never stopped a tank. Mm-hmm. And my rejoinder when I was a, you know, a sardonic uh, poet was, that's because nobody's ever stacked the unsold backlist of Seamus Haney in front of one. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, but I mean, how, do, how does a poem stop a tank, right? I mean, I, I, I agree with that sentiment, you know, that a poem is not, that's not what it's for, right? Um, uh, it could be that it, it makes things happen in the world. It might change minds. It might help uh, certain attitudes to flourish. It might teach us something about the world, um, inspire us. But um, I don't know, some of the worst uh, tyrants in human history, they, were, they all began as poets. Right? <laughs> you know, I think you have to be aware of poets who tell you what to do, right? because there are a lot of really bad ones who became tyrants in the history of our, of our cultures mm. around the world. Mm. You know, Stalin was a poet, right? Pound. Yeah, uh, Ezra Pound was a poet, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. Mao Zedong was a poet, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all of these people started out as poets mm-hmm. before they became autocrats. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now, I, I mean, my, there's always been a, a, a set of political concerns about poetry. I'm a working class kid, and I'm on the left. 
And certainly most of the poetry that has inspired my interest has been revolutionary in its overtones historically, right? Everything from futurism, Dadaism, surrealism, uh, onward. Uh, There's been a, a, I would say, a pretty anarchist or leftist dimension to all of the work that has informed my own historical understanding of the avant-garde. But the the role of of other aesthetic values like beauty, sublimity, um, those uh, kinds of concerns are less appreciated now, uh, right now. so uh, playfulness, I mean, the whimsical character of poetry, right? it's, it's nonsensical, uh, you know, uh, uh, contribution. Maybe uh, it's a kind of, as you're, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking maybe it is a kind of um, ass backwards neoliberalism where we're like, we're, you know, we're, we're poets and we, we think and, and vote and act progressive and on the left but but where that that neoliberal impulse to productivity and things should have a purpose and things need to do something is in us mm-hmm. and so we're like well my poem has to be useful my poem has to make a point my poem has to change your mind you know metaphorically at least stop a tank or try to and if it's not then i'm wasting everyone's time and i better Get out from behind the mic. <laughs> maybe. I, I, mean, I, I mean, maybe. That's but, my speculation. That's. Uh, I mean, that speculation could be true. Um, I don't. I. I. I think that. I think that uh, art is one of those uh, areas of life where politics probably has no business meddling. Yeah, like there's, there's many places in 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 our life where I think politics shouldn't tra- transact it, tra- 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 trespass upon it. Mm-hmm. There are places where uh, you know politics has no no role to play. Um, there are things for which there are no political solutions, for example. Uh, there's no political solution to the grief that you feel over the death of a child. Uh, you don't want there to be a political solution for that problem, right? that kind of feeling. right? You can't have a political solution for that. Uh, the world would be terrible if there were. right? There are certain kinds of things that, for which um, we have to testify to our suffering or our, you know, the problem of our existence without recourse right, to uh, solutions. Uh, served up by the social formations around us. Some things are probably irreconcilable in that milieu. Mm-hmm. And the role of art plays in that, or friendship plays in all of that, fellowship. Um, poetry makes that kind of contribution. Right? You know, part of the reason I became a poet, I think, was so that I could enjoy the conviviality of my peers. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the one job where you can work indoors and drink on the job. <laughs> <laughs> Right, uh, there are not many jobs where you drink on the job, right? I can only think of maybe what, like brain surgeon and uh, air traffic controller. <laughs> those, those, those jobs are stressful enough that you probably should drink on the job. <laughs> right? Absolutely. No, I don't. I don't know. Like, like, I don't know what the impulse right now is, apart from force and power, to imagine that poetry should um, that should err on the side of virtue, not talent. I just think that you know, art is. Art has its own job to do, and often it's it, it's to provide a solace, consolation, uh, a creative outlet uh, for an otherwise frustrated, uh, pro, you know, productive attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's exploratory. It's an experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to solve a problem or uh, answer a question or think out loud about something. You're just trying to even learn how to do something. Like I'm, I just like to know how to how to uh, use this piece of software or you know manipulate this particular color on the on the canvas, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there, there are opportunities to um, play. You know, like poetry for me is language on holiday. 
it's it's language if it's not language on holiday it's certainly language committing welfare fraud (laughs) (laughs) it's language out of work right and kind of trying to stay on the dole right but uh, uh, you know, the kidding aside, like, like uh, it, it's miraculous to me that I could become a poet and make uh, something akin to a living from it mm-hmm. for a little while, right? You know. Um, there's so much of that that I, I would love to dig into, but I've kept you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- would like to ask you to read one last thing to finish this off, but before I do that, this is where I meant to start the interview, so I, I apologize that I didn't actually think didn't actually get there but um i guess i'm just really acutely aware with the xenotext that like you've been working on it for a very long time you probably had a lot of conversations about it Mm -hmm. with people such as myself that don't fully understand it and i guess i just wanted to say like is there any aspect of it or any question that you wish that people would ask you so that you could talk about this one aspect <laughs> of the project, you know? That's where I meant to start. <laughs> right. Well, um, um, I, uh, people don't... There are things about the project that people don't often know about, right, that, that are fun things about it. To yeah. Me. They're, they're kind of fantastic things about the project. Uh, those two little poems, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, are currently sitting as a digital payload in a microcircuit uh, on the deck of the Insight probe, uh, uh, currently on the surface of Mars at uh, the Elysium Planitia, what? the poems are actually sitting oh my God. Uh, in, a, that? in a microchip uh, as stowaways aboard that spacecraft, and they're sitting on the planet's surface there, just just in the microchip, just hanging out, just hanging out in the microchip. But uh, uh, the radiation, ambient radiation on Mars, will eventually erase that data okay. eventually, so the poems will disappear over time. Um, I, I have hijacked uh, a few space probes that NASA has sent out into the void. And as a publicity stunt, NASA asks for contributions from the public, usually your name. Right? If you want, you can be a passenger aboard this spacecraft with your name on a, on a manifest. And bizarrely, to my dismay, people put their names. Right? They put up their names or they put up some handle of some sort. Right? Mm. But uh, it's possible put up a poem and that's what I've done it's you know just you know I hijacked uh, this uh, little publicity stunt by NASA and I published a poem uh, that is you know gets buried in the in the welter of, uh, of uh, digital payloads aboard the spacecraft and it uh, becomes now an enduring testament not to my identity uh, you know it becomes now a place where that poem gets stored and I think I'm the only poet who's done that you know uh, the Famous artists put their names up, and I'm going, why didn't you put an artwork on? <laughs> <laughs> that is strange it's, it, put it that way. Right, yeah. It's very strange, right? Yeah. And there's a handful of, of um, machines currently out in the, in the void that have the Xenotext aboard it. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm the first poet to put a poem on the surface of Mars, albeit probably temporarily. I mean, it, it, it's not engraved on a plaque. You know, I hope that someday I'm, I write something that NASA says would be worthy of being flown to another world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the poem has, in fact, been beamed by a radio um, observatory to uh, uh, Gliese 521, I think is the star, uh, in the constellation of Boötes, a little red dwarf star, uh, with an eye towards communicating with any alien civilization that might uh, live around that star. Uh, so the, the, the poem is out in the cosmos somewhere, right? You know, it's now floating around in a few space probes and 
been beamed out on a on a radio beam to another world. Um, you know, the, the 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 poem is trying to address a lar- an audience larger than us on the Kepler scale of civilizations, right? On the, or the Kardashev scale of civilizations, trying to you know address a, a um, an audience uh, that might uh, transcend our own existence, right? You know, the uh, poetry aspires, I think, to do that, to speak from one civilization to another. Mm. You know, I mean, the Greek civilization now has spoken to us. You know, in the voice of uh, Agamemnon, right? In the voice of Odysseus, um, and that to me is an amazing thing. It's truly incredible. And bizarrely, you know that poetry might be less relevant than than the Homeric epics of old, because um, there are no great canonical poems about the moon landing. And the moon landing. Ask about that too. Yeah. The, the moon landing is my my key event. Uh, that, that's the first event that I can remember. It's the first uh, memory that I can date. And I would have been just shy of my third birthday. It would have been you know, two or three weeks before my third birthday. And it's the first memory I have, watching a little white ghost step off a ladder onto the surface of the moon, being hugged by my mother from behind while she points at this little black and white blurry image on a tiny television set up on a formica chair in the yard of a farmhouse with an extension cord you know, leading out to it in the early hours of the morning while I'm in my flannel pajamas and she's pointing at that little screen and then pointing at the sky at the full moon trying to tell me that somewhere on the surface of that disc is uh, a man that little ghost you see is doing that right now uh, in a world that is so distant that it's inconceivable yet uh, despite the fact that's an interstellar voyage uh, in a world of intercontinental battles that would uh, beggar the mind of a Greek poet we have no epic testament to that achievement. Probably the most important thing that life has ever done on the earth to actually willfully leave the gravity well and begin its evolutionary development beyond the purview of the earth. To me, that first memory is like my saying my first memory is, is watching a lungfish hop out of the ocean mm. and explore the land. I mean, that's the first astronaut. Probably right, you know that some some poor tetrapod, you know, uh, on the Irish coast, you know, crawling out of the ocean and leaving it, leaving its 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 stump prints, not even footprints, on the surface of the the beach, you know. And here we are, leaving our boot prints uh, in my lifetime uh, on another world, and very likely, you know, some of us will get to do that with routineness, right, in the near future. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I might get you to read one more poem. Okay, I'm going to read you a poem that's in fact about those lungfish. How about great, that? Great, great, right. okay. excellent. Okay. All right. This is. It, it might be likewise a love poem. It's a. It's another. It's another kind of lyrically inflected poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got six sections to it, and it's entitled uh, "A Shard for the Archangel." A shard for the archangel. One. Turbines in trawlers, idling at anchor, mutter to men who loiter by the dock. Three of us, life-jacketed, board a boat, outset a sea mid-morn for the unique massif, its rock forlorn amid the surf offshore. The churn of a diesel engine muffles our talk, 
while the pilot eases us across each swell toward the ocean inlet, out beyond the quilted lowland of the quay. The hillside, its greenery, upwelling like a high tide, astride us, crests at a fort whose ruins overlook a chessboard of lawns below an airy. We abscond by ferry from a harbor. Two. Angriest is the spray off the bowsprit, the hull a quiver from the choppiness. We grip a handrail near us to steel us against the impact from the cutwater. Each wave a reft wall of onyx hefted for the axe of the prow to deal a blow to a sunlit summit of foam shattered. We topple into shade, then into glare. We leap at the hollers of each spotter who gestures astern. If a dolphin slips like a torpedo through a windowpane of water in our wake, then disappears. The sky over bright, but full of fulmars and gannets all plummeting about us. Three. See birds bicker. They circle and alight upon the froth then bob like coracles, their flotillas as unanchored as clouds, adrift. Rays of daylight in the distance bedizen a cliff, its ramparts of stacked favelas underpainted with white drips of graffiti, each nest a wattle shrine for riffraff, overcrowding every ledge. The whitecaps atomize into fountains of mist at the foot of this mountain top. We forge onward around this obstacle, dodging the gulag of the flock, our toy ark buffeted by breakers, yet undrawn toward a more distant bastion of rock. 4. Acolytes using pickaxes hacked rough steps into this chopped obelisk of slate, slaving for crucifixes born like bright sabers waved from the highest parapet, the rostrum for the falcon of cruel faith. What Aubad could ever celebrate these recluses piling cairns for their cloisters, dying alone in each dovecote of stone? The devout, starving in a thunderstorm, averted no raids, all the stalls deprived of provisions, but surrendered to grace like dousers of the flame in a lighthouse falling ill. The unsure, braving the stairs in the rain, slipped, crippled into the sea. 5. Orbiting the isle like astronauts caught in the sling of a moonshot flung amiss, we photograph these crevices, cratered and splashed by forces too severe for us to berth our craft in a cove. We recross the lively tumult of the gulf, upbuoyed by the promise of peat moss in the fires of a hearth. We regain footing on land every boot print akin to the pockmarks on the shore of a cape beyond the ridge, the fossils of the footfalls 
from the first of all dragons to emerge from the deep. We keep recalling our trip to the shard, the drab crag, now scaldic and magical. 6. Tomorrow we descend to a beachfront of sandstone to survey the oldest tracks left behind by strand beasts after landfall, imprints hardened into clay, unguarded against erosion and vandals. Who tends to these muted marks of our pilgrimage from seafloor to savanna? No roamers, but we stand in wonder over these scars, though surely a ranger nearby secures the marvel of their carving. No martyrs who have etched such epitaphs ever die, but like an angel who pledges the torch of her sword to her liege, they award us this baton, which we pass on to the stars. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, being so indulgent with me, Alice. I'm very grateful that uh, you put up with all of my prolix conversation. <laughs> You've been very kind to uh, allow me to speak to your audience. Thank you very much, one and all, for listening. <laughs>